Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My next guest joins us in the studio to talk about her new work, Running with Emus, a new Australian play. Merrilee Moss is a playwright uh, who's been working for a while, and Moss has written this play partially be after being inspired by being uh, a blow-in or an outsider <laughs> in the, the country town that she moved to. Moss, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. Lovely Congratulations, Richard. Thank you very much. Kind of uh, still getting my head around being a, a Sydney Meyer Prize winner, but you well well deserved. Thank you very much. I'll uh, kind of spend the money wisely. I promise. I've already promised my mum that. So. Uh, but t- talk to us about kind of running with emus. The title alone kind of is provocative and intriguing and playful, uh, which I, is the play all of those things as well? Pro- it is all of those things. It's, um, it's got a serious underpinnings and even a little bit of blackness perhaps, but there's a lot of much laughter, hope, you know, uh, encouraged. Um, it's, as you say, stimulated by my move to the country where I found people rather amusing, as well as, you know, I was thrust into the role of outsider, otherwise known as blow-in um, or a newcomer. And, um, you know, for example, everyone drives everywhere, even though the town's not much bigger than a shopping mall. And people don't use umbrellas. They just look at the sky with a puzzled expression. This water's coming down because it doesn't rain very often, I realise. But I, when I first got there, I'd be walking up the street with my umbrella and then I'd look around and feel very self-conscious. No one does that. Um, I also doubted my first language for a while because it's everyone, not not everyone, but the way of speaking is very cliched Australian. It's like, and gone. Um, and I just found I had a culture shock similar to more, more culture shock than I had when I travelled in Europe. Now, because you've the the place you've moved to is Kahuna in uh, kind of uh, northern Victoria, up it's fairly close to the Murray. Um, yes, it's got it's on the Gunbarra Creek, which comes off the Murray and returns to the Murray, and in the middle of that is Gunbarra Island, which they proudly say is the biggest inland island in Australia. What made you move to Kahuna in the first place? Uh, economic um, pressures. As an older woman, I was getting a bit worried. I could end up in the gutter playing my flute, being a busker. Or so, you know, there are, it is very, it's a serious issue for older women, yeah. economic problems. Um, and I started to look outside Melbourne to see if I could buy something and not have a mortgage. And I kept going further and further out because it's, it's still expensive in Castlemaine and, and Dalesford. And somebody said Kahuna's the secret of the Mallee or something. And so I went there, well, I went there online, picked the house that I liked. And then I went up like a mature adult and looked at about seven houses. But I ended up with that house. And that's where I live. And I don't have a mortgage, which is really nice. But it's a completely alien environment. I knew no one. That must have been a big kind of like it's a it's clearly it's a big step to take uh, and a dramatic one and it must have been frightening and discombobulating on one level to leave friends behind leave networks and personal support structures and connections in order to move what two hundred and seventy four kilometres yeah, north it's of a Melbourne three and a half hour drive yeah, yeah. so it's a, it's a huge step but it's also then clearly been uh, a valuable one artistically in order. Th- given that it's inspired this new play, Running With Emus. Well, yes, it was um, 
I love that little house and I've got on my quarter acre block, I've got nice trees and I've got birds and all the birds that I see are in the play. There are two main characters, I guess. Um, there's an older woman, a little older than me. She's in her, in her 70s and there's a young 28-year-old and um, and they are both... Um, I forgot where I was going with that. But anyway, the older one uh, is looking at the birds as I do. There's a bit of me in both of those characters. The young one is the revolutionary who wants to change the world, and I still want to change the world. Um, and the older one is kind of given up on life, which I probably did for a little bit when I first got there. Not seriously, but just that sense of, oh, well, now I'll retire and do nothing and just look at the birds and you know do the crossword. Um, but I soon got really stimulated by the town, and um, as well as feeling like this having this outsider's perspective which is useful as a writer and I was able to move because I live I want to write you want writers want a place to write and I felt safe um, but as well as that I I temporarily joined the refugee support group Ganawara refugee support group who were putting a motion to the shire to make the shire a refugee friendly zone and I was completely behind that went to the shire meetings and um, but it turned out that they were all Christians <laughs> and really radical Christians they do a great job but I don't like going in churches I'm not I've had bad experiences I think you know, a lot of the ills of the world are, have been caused by Christians and um, but I wanted to help so I thought I'll write a play about this journey and I put an application into the Australia Council and got funded for, to do research and the day after I got that funding we actually got it through the Shire so we became a refugee and migrant-friendly zone. So that's the very thin narrative thread in the play. But as well as that, I met people who um, I don't. I, I did feel like I'd slipped back into the fifties. Very monoculture. It's a monoculture. Not many foreigners there. Um, and I, I I met people who are first and second or second and third um, generation immigrants. But they were really hated refugees and the notion of having any strangers in town. Which is a strange conundrum when you think that two generations ago your parents were, I don't know, uh, post-war migrants to Australia, for example. Hmm. I know that uh, my uh, mum's family are up from New Merca Way, for example, New Merca, Shepparton, that area. Uh, my and, dad comes from there. Yeah, and yeah. so lots of uh, <laughs> Italian kind of migrants after the war and Greek families have settled in the area as well. Uh, and... So, yeah, in the 1950s, they would have been the reviled outsiders, the, the, the kind of, in inverted commas, weird wogs with their funny food. And now, 50, 60, 70 years later, they're the ones who are turning around going, oh, migrants, we don't want them here. I mean, here. Muslims. Get, no, you know, so I've, I've tried to look at all of that in the play. It, the play refers back to that time when there were prisoners of war and um, internees during the war, the aliens. When I went to the Historic Society to do a bit of research that I found, with, to my delight, on the top shelf were these big folders, box folders, three of them labelled aliens. Oh, I know. It's really exciting. It's a fantastic thing to discover. Yeah. What were the kind of tensions in the town around the, the, the creation of this play? Because on one level you're reflecting some realities of life in, in the area that some people may be uncomfortable having kind of aired in public, for example, the, their attitude towards refugees, for example, or the, the, the nature of small-town life. Were you – obviously I'm sure you were, you were cautious about people's sensibilities and so forth, but it must have been a bit of a, a tightrope a tight act to walk at times as a playwright, wanting to be honest – but kind of knowing that as an outsider, you also have to respect, perhaps respect some small town protocols. I do. I've learned all of that. And I also began to realise I had a lot to learn. I wasn't the, 
you know, a wanky intellectual from the city who knew everything. I had a lot to learn. But I did, I have written verbatim plays in the past and I started off the, the project with the Australia Council was to interview lots, lots of people, which I did. But um, I soon realised that small towns are too sensitive and defensive. Most people would say, um, we're not racist, we're just not used to them. Um, and they certainly, yeah, they, uh, uh, and if most of the things they do are done with a sense of humour too. So one of the things I've got in the plays, um, and I sort of highlight it in a humorous way, is the local tagaway shop is called Chinese Trevs. And that's because Trevor Kelly used to own it. And they've had two families of Chinese have owned it since, but it's still called Chinese Ship. Chinese Trevs and last night I learnt from some Kahuna people who came to the play that the young people actually call it Chevs for short <laughs> but after the play some of the um, people in the audience came and said they were going to go and find out what the name of the Chinese family was they felt shamed so that was not the intention of the play but it was interesting yeah. And now it's got a season at La Mama Courthouse. And just as always, when I talk about shows that are on at La Mama, a quick disclaimer. Yes, I'm the volunteer <laughs> chair of the Committee of Management. I don't benefit financially from my involvement with La Mama. And thus, this is not a conflict of interest talking about a La Mama show. But before it's La Mama season, uh, uh, you had it, it premiered, its world premiere season mm. was kind of in the country, which is fantastic. How did that go? Well, it was amazing. It was um we had two shows, two o'clock and six o'clock on on Saturday, the twenty ninth of February, and we ha- it's set on a farm veranda. The main character is a hoarder, and she's moved onto her veranda because she can no longer fit in the house. And um, so we found a veranda. It was suggested to me by the arts officer of the Regional Arts Victoria. Why don't we use a veranda? So I hunted and hunted, and eventually found a perfect veranda in the forest at Treetop Scout Camp, and. Um, then I started to organise it. Well, I thought I was organising. Nobody goes to the plays. They don't even know what a play is, some of them. They think it's a um, a musical at the best or a concert, you know. Um, so but so there's going to be a play on. I thought maybe we'll get 40 people. We had 200 at each show and I was the event organiser on top of everything else. So <laughs> getting the seating. But it was absolutely a miracle. Like I learned about community because I'd say something like, how are we going to get the seating? Where are we going to get these seats from? And all these old men would appear with tractors and forklifts and and tiered seating they'd taken from the netball court. And 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 then some another old guy. There's a lot of old guys would say, you know, I'd, I'd say you can have it for you can have a free ticket if you want to volunteer. And and he said, oh, I'll do parking. And you think, oh, parking. I hadn't even thought that was an issue. So we had all the little Leos. What's that's Baby Lion Club. They were all out there directing parking. And when my friends arrived, he said, one of the little guys said, are you with the band? And, <laughs> and of course, my friend said, yeah, we're with the band so they could get a good park. But um, so we're 200 to each show and the show is very confronting. It is funny and they thought it was hilarious because there's a lot of dairy jokes and things. And also they had the laughter of recognition at all their things, like things like everyone driving short distances and you park at the IGA and then you drive up and you park at the bank 50 yards up. But um, it, And I think it gave them something. I think the people in the country have had a hard time and up there it's because of the dairy crisis. And, um, and I, they feel, I think they felt that put them on the map. It was just beautiful. I'm, I'm tearing up even telling I can imagine you. there is something about being seen, being mm. recognised, having somebody else recognise the truth of your life mm. and seeing that reflected back at you is a, 
it is a really powerful experience. And I'm thinking particularly in a, in a small town like uh, Kahuna, if that means that some young people came to see the play who've never been exposed to live theatre before and you've shown them the magic of that... Who knows? Then mm. the, the next moss might be kind of a native-born Kahunian. Well, I am a Kahunian. I think just the day before I was a blow-in, but after that they, they, I've, they've sort of kind of taken me on like Australia takes on New Zealand Oscar winners and sports stars. <laughs> you know, I was mobbed in the IGA. <laughs> <laughs> so, Moss, the Melbourne season of Running With Emus is on now. Uh, so you did your first preview last night. Well, we, we, well, we did a... Um, it's kind of the school week because we're on the VCE list. So last week we had quite a lot of individuals as well, but we had PLC and a school called the um, Virtual Secondary School, which I had. I think it's like the old correspondence school. Um, and the audience was completely different. There were four Kahuna people in the audience who came and talked to me afterwards and were amazed at how different it was. They were absolutely silent, but they were completely captivated. So I knew things were going okay. Um, and then we had a Q&A afterwards in which they told me it was not only okay, they loved it, but it was so different. I, maybe they were school kids and they are a bit nervous to laugh, but um, they didn't move and they were school kids. They didn't move or speak. <laughs> so, and then the, uh, the, the season that is the, not the, the VCA student season, because this is being studied by uh, VCE theatre mm. kids, which is great, but then the season at La Mama running through until the, from the 11th to the 22nd of March. Yeah. Uh, Wednesdays to Thursdays at 1pm and 6.30pm. Fridays 11am and 7.30pm. Saturdays at 7.30, Sundays at 4pm. If you're boggled by that and going, what, when, what time? Just go to www.lamama.com.au where you'll see uh, all the kind of dates and times for Running With Emus, the new Australian play by Marilee Moss. Uh, you can book by calling 9347 6948 or as I said, jump online, www.lamama.com.au. It's showing at the Lamama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street, Drummond Street, Carlton, until the 22nd of March. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Running With Emus myself. Moss, thank you so much for coming into Thanks, Triple R. Thanks, Richard. My next guest for the morning has joined us in the studio. Sam Strong uh, is formerly the Artistic Director of Queensland Theatre, uh, has now moved back to Melbourne and is doing a little bit of, well, kind of readjusting to life and rhythms of a different city and also doing some freelance direction and joins us to talk about the production of David Williamson's Emerald City that he is directing for the MTC, which uh, is a, a co-production. So op- it's already had a season up in Queensland. It, yes, yes, it had a season in uh, Brisbane and it opened last night. So, you know, I, I share your uh, your dustiness. Uh, congratulations <laughs> on air again for your award. Thank you. Uh, as well, I know you're appropriately basking. Yeah. So um, I'm going to be honest up front and say I'm not a huge fan of David Williamson. I have some... I think his early plays are fascinating and significant and they are part of the Australian canon. But his more recent work, it's almost like when I saw Don Parties On, for example, his sequel to Don's Party, I felt like the the generational kind of gap was had widened, his characters were more caricatures and the mechanics of his plot, I could almost hear the gears grinding as plot elements shifted into gear. So this is a much earlier work. So does it still suffer from some of the, the, the later kind of 
structure structural issues and, and and flaws that for me make it difficult to enjoy Williamson's yeah, look, work. I think it's an it's an interesting uh, viewpoint, and of course you're kind of not alone in in in, in having that viewpoint. And I think um, it speaks in some ways to the origins of this revival and what um, Brett Sheehy, the artistic director of Melbourne Theatre Company, and myself um, as the AD of, of Queensland Theatre and the director were interested in in pursuing. Uh, and because this is the fiftieth, this year is the fiftieth anniversary of of David's professional life uh, as a as a playwright. Uh, and we were interested in finding ways to to honour and celebrate that. Uh, and we thought that the, the, possibly the best way to do it was to go back to uh, what for both of us is one of his his finest works. Uh, and I think it is really interesting going back. I mean, of course, the, there are there are arguments that I'll probably talk about in a moment around around reviving contemporary classics and the reason that you revive uh, contemporary classics. But what's been really fascinating about going back to this work in particular um, is that uh, you see. Uh, how rich in ideas uh, David was, David's work was at this point um, in his career. Uh, and I think you also see the seeds of uh, things and 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 uh, trajectories that have come to define Australian theatre. Like there's a really there's a really fascinating moment in the kind of climax of this play, which is a sort of a spoiler free um, climax, but it sort of speaks to um, the right to one's own story. Uh, and and, and the, there's this kind of climactic speech about, you know, we need we have a right to stories uh, and to hear our own our own stories um, in our own voices. And of course, you know, in the in the sort of seventies new wave that was about um, Australian accents on stage versus a kind of Anglophile um, history. Uh, in the eighties when this play was written, this was very much about uh, kind of North, particularly in the film set, uh, context was very much about sort of North America versus um, versus Australia. But I think actually the impulse that was articulated in this play um, is the impulse that sort of lies behind the diversification of Australian theatre that we've appropriately seen uh, in in, in the, the most recent few years. So, you know, something like Golden Shield or Torch the Place at, at MTC are... are in essence, for me, about um, people hearing their own stories in their own voice on stage, and it's really interesting to go back to this this kind of formative play um, of David's and see uh, that that impulse is being articulated way back then, albeit in a different context. Now, is it a formative play? Because this is his fifteenth play in his career. He's a hugely prolific playwright uh, and continu- has continued to write work up until the present. Uh, so this comes after the success of things like The Coming of Stork, The Removalists, Don's Party, The Club, Travelling North and so forth. So there's already that kind of really significant body of early work. What intrigues me about this play, and I've not seen a production of it, is that it re- this feels like a, um, a pivotal point in Williamson's life as a playwright. It's It's partially autobiographical. It's the move from Melbourne to Sydney. It's exploring the rival cultures of those cities, which on one level I'm like, but why... They, they're not rivals. They're, they're just different <laughs> cities with different ways of working and thinking, the same way that Hobart is different to Brisbane. You, they don't have a rivalry. Why do Sydney and Melbourne? Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I think... Um, and it speaks to another thing that, that drew me to this work in the first instance, which is how autobiographical it is. Uh, and I think there is something beautifully unguarded about what David has written uh, in this work in terms of his portrait of himself, uh, but also, I think, in terms of his portrait of his his marriage. Uh, and my childhood point of entry into this into this play was that kind of the kind of classic uh, city rivalry thing, particularly the sort of portrait of Sydney from someone who's from Melbourne. Uh, but I think the play is about much more than that. And what, what drew me to this 
play as an adult uh, is the relationship drama that exists at its heart. Uh, and and particularly, um, there's another line in there that, um, again, this is a sort of spoiler-free uh, appropriation of lines from the play, but um, where there's a line to the effect of, you know, in any relationship between professionals, there's a struggle for, uh, for supremacy. Um, and that... Um, speaks to the sort of portrait of, of the relationship that's at the centre of the play, but is also, you know, very much about um, what was going on in, in David's, and, and David and Kristen talk about it, they've talked about this very openly. You know, it's very much about what was going on in their relationship at the time, but I think it lends it lends this play a sort of kernel of authenticity that you might not otherwise associate uh, with this writer. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's it's quite a, a, a beautiful, unique thing in this in this play. Yeah. One of the things that also then intrigues me about this work, as you say, is the chance that it is a, uh, it, it, it's an opportunity to revisit something from Australian theatre history. And as an artistic director, whether at Griffin Theatre uh, or at Queensland Theatre, you've clearly had an interest in revisiting elements of the kind of, quote, Australian theatrical canon, unquote, which is... An amorphous thing. We don't. Uh, I've had this discussion with a, a couple of Irish uh, theatre makers and playwrights and and arts uh, administrators in Ireland. The idea of the canon is established and clear, and people can talk about the the key playwrights and the the shifts in, in writing style they represent. We don't do that here as well. Uh, why is it so important to look back on our theatrical past? Yeah, well, I think obviously there are the the, the term canon um, can be can be problematic, and, and particularly in an, an Australian context, you're looking you can be looking back at a repertoire that is um, quite white and quite uh, quite male. But I I think actually looking back to contemporary classics is about the creation of the next generation of classic for me. So uh, it's actually about the health of a new writing culture uh, or a new writing ecology. Uh, and when I was at Griffin, I did did quite a bit of the re- uh, reviving of contemporary classics. I think we, in consecutive years we did uh, Andrew Bavell's Speaking in Tongues, Gordon Graham's The Boys, and then John Romerell's Floating World. Uh, and then actually I think Lee uh, Lewis, who succeeded me there, did um, Emerald City the year after that uh, as well. But I think that is an exercise in putting uh, contemporary classics along the ne- alongside the next generation of classics. So I think it also speaks to something that is true of Australian theatre where uh, as practitioners as an, as, and as an industry, we tend to have a little bit of amnesia about the kind of recent past. We know that we know the kind of, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the classic repertoire pretty well. Um, we know our immediate context and our immediate past quite well. Um, but that sort of generational divide, if you like, of kind of 15, 20 years uh, is one that's not often not often bridged. Uh, and I think for me as a director, I've often enjoyed coming back to those plays. And essentially as a director, I treat them as a new, as a new play. Uh, and and uh, I think it's a really particular challenge to revise a contemporary classic. And I think you can be um, as robust as you are if you're doing a work from the repertoire, of course. Um, but I think interestingly, sometimes your work on a contemporary classic can be Invisible because I see, or a lot of it can be invisible because I see my job is to make that play uh, and that experience as fresh uh, and alive for the audience that is seeing it, however many years after they saw it the first time round, yeah. uh, as as when when they saw it, yeah, twenty years ago, or fifteen you, years ago. You don't want to do it as a heritage piece. You don't want it to be stiff and creaky. Oh, completely. And I think if I think if you are doing it in a way that's stiff and creaky, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah you've, you've absolutely, for me as a director, you've got to find a way um, to bring these plays into the present. That's all. That's not just about kind of where you're in inverted commas setting it um, I think that's about the treatment and, and something that's really underlied this uh, 
approach to um, Emerald City is to embrace the fact that we're doing it from a kind of 2020 um, standpoint, even though that the play is technically speaking set in the 80s, but also to approach the execution uh, and particularly the design of it in a way that you could only do in 2020. Before we talk about how you've kind of revisited uh, this production of Emerald City, that notion of the culture of forgetting that you acknowledged, do you think one of the reasons some of our theatrical past isn't as celebrated as it could be or known as it should be is because theatre is an ephemeral art form and that if you didn't see the production, it's off, rarely written about, particularly now as the, a culture of criticism gets smaller and smaller in terms of documentation of, of work? I think absolutely, and that's that's of course that vital role that criticism plays in the ecology. And, and maybe there is a relationship between that duration and generations of theatre practitioners in that you are sometimes seeing the next generation of theatre practitioners coming to works that they might have seen in in they might have encountered in kind of formative years uh, and I think about that and I think something something um, a lot of what Matt Lutton's done at the Malthouse is a good example of, of Away or um, Cloud Street. Are they, They're kind of um, classics of a previous generation that are being revisited and revised. And I don't know the answer on, on God of Matt's behalf, whether, whether he encountered them at... Um, I presume with Cloud Street, maybe he did. Uh, so, yeah, I think... I think um, you are seeing um, new generations go back to classic works, but uh, but um, it's true that we don't we don't have a memory of although, although audience memories are relatively um, can be relatively long, particularly in particularly in Melbourne. So they'll talk about seeing, and it's interesting in um, both Brisbane and in Melbourne when I've had any kind of interaction with audiences, a you know preview speech or a kind of play briefing or something, I've I've actually asked the audience how many people have seen the original, uh, and in both of those contexts, sort of two thirds of the audience put up their hand, um, quite whether they can remember it or not. Much of it or not is another another question but um, um i see yeah again but i see my job is to is to make it make it fresh for them and do it in a way that surprises them would you ever consider i don't know doing a production of uh plays like uh rusty bugle stretch of the imagination brumby innis oh i think for, for me the, the the choice to revive a contemporary classic is very much a personal directorial choice and and yes there's those kind of ecology and industry arguments but i think uh i'm not really interested in reviving a work as a director unless i can i can see a way through it uh and i have a kind of point of entry of of what interests me in it and and why i'm doing it for uh emerald city how did you you've talked about what has attracted you to the play itself how do you then find a way to approach this instead of instead of reverentially and and make uh, presenting it intact as was including some kind of lines or phrases or or elements that may now grate with a contemporary sensibility how talk to us about how you've kind of chosen to present Emerald yeah, City there's a, there's a, there's a couple of levels to that i mean one level is um in a way a sort of easy or easy answer not that it's cheating but to say that, you know inevitably um, when you're making work um in the present you will always bring um or i hope one would always bring uh your 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 contemporary sensibility particularly in terms of your um, of contemporary politics uh and in relation to Emerald City that politics is probably around around kind of uh, gender politics and also around um, the way we talk about kind of First Nations politics uh, now. So we're, we're obviously approaching it from, from a kind of contemporary standpoint, but then another side of that is a design side, uh, another side of that is a kind of casting side, uh, and another side of that is a kind of dramaturgical or text side too. So um, David and I, um, I've directed David's plays before, so we've got a good kind of writer-director uh, dynamic. Um, and so so we've been, we, we've been involved with him, and in a way... Um, I'm kind of loath to talk about um, text 
changes because in a way the conversation then becomes about that rather than about the play. But they're they're they're, they're minor. Um, but but and of course with kind of David's involvement and it's not a sort of you know update the thing and stick in Facebook and a kind of you know, <laughs> and, a, and an iPhone. Um, it's certainly not doing not doing that. But um, you know it, it's for me it's almost about the spirit of it. Like I'm approaching it like it's a like it's a new work. Uh, and it's a work without any without any baggage. And then the, yeah, the design side of that is to, um, and I think this is true of of some of David's work in the in the past, uh, is that I was very we were very keen to not bog the work down beneath kind of unnecessarily um, naturalism in it in its set. Uh, so and- instead of going for the aesthetic of the the period it's written and set uh you've gone for um and working with designer dale ferguson this very kind of sleek gleaming contemporary design absolutely and i think the um you'll you'll appreciate this but in some ways the the uh the design was reconciling the arguments that sort of beset australian theater in the in the uh the mid noughties which was uh, so we, we have a glass box uh, sorry a, a white couch inside a glass box uh, or a version of a version of a glass box but they were two sort of poles apart of um, of a kind of Australian design aesthetic in the uh, in the in the noughties but um, no and, and also so this is a play that that um, moves in its original uh, incarnation on and off the page moves um, very fluidly moves very fast between locations uh, and I wanted to find a way to pick up on that but but speed it up essentially um, for a kind of contemporary attention span so um yeah we've, we've we, and also to foreground the argument and the relationship so to to sort of strip everything else out of the way uh and also to find a slightly more abstract way of putting a view uh and putting the idea of aspiration on stage uh so so yeah we, we've we've hopefully i think well, i think we have in this very much in this design uh found a way to kind of wrench the play into an aesthetic present if you've just tuned in, my guest is Sam Strong, who's directing David Williamson's Emerald City for the Melbourne Theatre Company. The season's on now, running until the 18th of April, and the production showing at the South Bank Theatre in the Sumner. Uh, and I'll give the booking details in just a moment. Um, Sam, in terms of Williamson as a playwright, his status in the Australian landscape, he's he's clearly a, a, a kind of a titan, uh, and not just because he's his, his actual physical <laughs> size. He does kind of tower head and shoulders above people, literally. Kind of, what do you think people will be in, say, in twenty, forty, fifty years' time? Uh, how do you think Williamson's body of work, not just uh, the, the 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 classics, but his body of work, how do you think he will be appreciated by future audiences? I think I think he'll be appreciated really really well, and I think it, it's because he has quite a unique ability to speak both to a time and across time. Uh, and if you think about that body of work, you know, you think about how rooted a play like The Removalist is in the 70s uh, and in the kind of culture of toxic masculinity in the 70s, which interestingly hasn't necessarily gone uh, gone anywhere. And, and in the same way, Emerald City is rooted in this kind of culture of entrepreneurialism and, and excess of the 80s, which equally hasn't necessarily um, gone anywhere. But what's been um, fascinating about coming back to um, David's work generally and this play in particular um, is the way it speaks across time. So, you know, yes, people talk about this play as, as about the rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne and about the kind of tension between art and commerce. Uh, but even more broadly than that, for me, this play is about the struggle to maintain your integrity. Uh, it's a really fascinating examination of how you stay authentic, uh, how you stay selfless, um, how you stay altruistic uh, in a world that is massively tempting you to do otherwise. Uh, and that they're, they're the parts of the play, for me, that speak 
across time. So to, to, to extrapolate that to his whole body of work, I think what people will find um, with David's work is, yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a sense that he's always spoken very much to the kind of the, the zeitgeist or to the time that he's writing about or those, those sort of issue plays that, he's, um, that he wrote particularly in the 90s. But I think what will be interesting as, as future generations uh, discover them is the way that he's actually tapping into, in the way that great drama does, um, more archetypal or universal themes. So I think that will, that will acquit his work very well in the long term. The MTC production of Emerald City, which is a co-production with Queensland Theatre, uh, David Williamson's play is on from the 6th of March to the 18th of April, so on now, opened last night uh, at the Southbank Theatre in the Sumner. Uh, tickets at mtc.com.au, where you can also find kind of interviews and uh, kind of background behind the scenes stuff about the production. You can also call 8688. 0800, that's 86880800 or mtc.com.au to book for David Williamson's Emerald City, directed by Sam Strong. Sam, as always, an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Triple R. Artist Matthew Sleeth is here to talk about a drone opera. Uh, a cinematic installation of which is showing at the Lion House Museum Galleries in Kew in Cotham Road. Matthew, welcome back to Triple R. Hi, Richard. So tell us about this work, A Drone Opera, because it's had kind of a number of iterations, including a season at Carriage Works last year. Um, I think you've been also involved uh, presenting it at Arts House with Experimenta and so forth as well. So it's had a, a long life and now a, a new iteration. Is it a, a mutating and constantly growing work? Yeah, I mean, one of the fun things about this project is to see what it can become. It's had a, a very long uh, and involved life already. I mean, the, the original idea before it got to Arts House was it was going to be a gallery performance. It was going to be a live painting in a gallery. And then for lots of reasons that didn't happen. It ended up being commissioned by Experimenta uh, in 2015 with Arts House as a live performance and so moving from sort of the gallery idea to a sort of more narrative ticketed idea of what a live performance is as opposed to my usual practice like in as a visual artist in the gallery and then I was kind of amazing fun but I knew that I didn't want to do it again I knew that I wanted to do something else with it and uh, so we knew that we weren't going to do the live performances again a couple of years out from them so we filmed with feature film cinematographers the whole way through uh, development and performance and afterwards to create a new work. The fact that, I mean, you're a multidisciplinary artist, so the idea of thinking outside traditional forms and structures for artwork is clearly something that comes naturally to you already. But I'm intrigued by the idea of taking what was originally a live performance and turning it into a new artwork, a cinematic kind of work onto massive LED screens. Yeah, so kind of always working out what a work needs to become is sort of part of the fun. And so I had, you know, I think every artist really wants to be in a band. And so this was the closest I'd ever come. Like uh, with you know, Robin Fox, Phil Samartis, Kate Richards, Shelley Lassiter, um, you know, the singers, Susan Frickberg, the composer, all the people whose practices I'd sort of watched and enjoyed over the years. This was the sort of opportunity to get together and, and work work to make something new. And then it was so hard to get everyone together. I thought it's never going to happen again quite the way that we've had this very special experience now. 
so what's the opportunity for the work to become something new? And what are the what do you gain from a live performance with a body in front of you and opera singers in front of you are amazing. Like they're And drones hovering so that the audience can actually feel the, the air moving. And and drones over you. I mean, we had the beginning and end for years. This took I mean it was two thousand fifteen, but it took years for it to happen. And I knew that I wanted it to open in total darkness with uh, drones flying over you so that you felt the wind from them and you heard them before you saw anything. And that would sort of give you this bodily sense of what it was like to be under surveillance or around drones without actually having to say anything in terms of te- you know text or narrative. Uh, and so when it moved to knowing you know, well before that we wanted to make it a, a, a film installation, we're like, what do you gain from a film installation? What do you lose from that became the question we spent you know really years working out. Um, and yeah, and so now it's become... Uh, uh, Carriageworks was a three-channel installation and this one we sort of wanted to do something a little bit different onto a two-channel installation and see, you know, if you move around an audience, if you come up, you see faces, you see emotion, you know, you have the phenomenology in a theatre but you are far away. Now, one of the fascinating things for me as somebody who, for example, sees a lot of theatre but will also sometimes go and see... Uh, live theatre that has been filmed, kind of the the process of what is lost from that process, but then what you gain is a, a really fascinating thing to consider and an experience to have. With this installation of a drone opera at the Lion House Museum's gallery, I understand that not only you're, you're placing it on the screen for the audience to look at, but you're then considering sculptural elements of it as well in terms of kind of the speaker stacks and then what the not just then the sculptural element, but then also the kind of, I guess, the presence of sound in the space and how that impacts on the audience, how they can experience that as they move through the gallery space. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we all talked about over the years was the risk of something like this is it becomes documentation and and it's just a diminished version of the theatre experience. And so trying to sort of see what you lose from that and what, you, what the opportunities of a live performance, of a live performance versus a, a, a moving image performance uh, are what we you know wanted to do so you know duration changes narrative changes your experience of text and and kind of following what's happening in a scene changes but what you can replace it with is is this kind of different kind of sensory experience and so for the cinematic performances we were thinking you know what 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 is everything you know what? What is the way to replace the phenomenology of having the wind blown on you by a drone and a live opera singer? And it's to make well, first thing is to make amazing sound. So we went to um, a lot of trouble to record the performances. The other thing we wanted to do in the performances, which we thought was really interesting, but it didn't fit, was embed some of the development. So a lot of the ideas of testing things and just getting together with a group of people and going, what works, what doesn't, what should we try, what shouldn't we, is a kind of interesting process and performing that process in some ways is a real interest to me so the way the work has ended up as a moving image work isn't so much a video installation of the performance it's more a film version of the world of the drone opera and so the aesthetic the images and you know as a visualist i'm very interested in the way you can create drama and narrative without words and so how does light and movement and color affect you in a way that is still, I think, drama. So is it an abstraction of the original work or an expansion of the original work, would you say? Yeah, it's an abstraction. I'm really interested in ways you can ripple out from something. And so something 
referencing and echoing from a previous work. I mean, I'm realistically, I'm never going to get the chance to do this again, where something starts as a live performance, ends up as a gallery installation, and then there is, as you mentioned, there's a short film version that was at the Sydney Film Festival last year, which what an audience requires in a cinema is so different to what an audience requires in a gallery and, again, different to what they require in a, in a theatre. So, um, yeah, that opportunity to see what it can become and see how far it can travel from the original work and how different an experience it can be with still keeping the same themes of, you know, surveillance and our fetishization of technology and, you know, the military, I guess, aspect of drones as well. My guest is Matthew Sleeth. Uh, we're talking about uh, his work, A Drone Opera, which is uh, being presented at the Lion House Museum Galleries in Cotham Road, Kew. As part of the kind of the, this exhibition of the work, there's, I guess, kind of uh, a range of events that are happening responding to the work. So there's some panel discussions, and then I think on the final day of the exhibition, there's kind of a live performance in the space, again, responding to the work on the screens. Yeah, so there's two panel performances. One is sort of more with uh, sort of from an architecture angle and looking at the way sort of cities are changing with technology. Uh, the other is looking more from a contemporary art version with sort of other artists and curators talking about the way technology is changing art. And then uh, the la- the last night is is again going back to your question of like how does it change as a sculpture you know so the aesthetic I had in mind for this was to make uh, was sort of ACDC meets Spinal Tap like I just wanted to have it be as rock as possible so there's these huge I call them like the U two screens you know they go to the concert and they have the big LED screens behind you and for about five years I've tried to do a work with those and it's nearly impossible to. F- get someone to lend them to you for that long because then they have to say no to all the music acts and and festivals and the money that goes with that. So I've been extremely lucky to be able to have those for two weeks. It's also the reason why it's quite a short show. And so a big shout out to Larry Ponting at JBL and Gary Davey at Lighting Lab for making this possible. And it's – so the two big screens with two big cinemas, uh, two big sort of music speaker stacks next to it. And we were really keen to make a performance, but conceptually it didn't work to say, well, let's put a soprano, you know, soprano there or the singer or make an aspect of this live, like that, why just today, why not, and why just that person, why not everybody? And so it sort of made much more sense to keep the work on the screens. And I asked um, two, two performers who are, have been you know, fans of their work, and that's um, Nat Grant, a percussionist and drummer, and Dave Brown, a, a noise guitarist who performs under Candle Snuffer. And I just have asked them to come and respond to the installation. So the installation will be going as normal and the sound and music will be going as it would. And then each of them separately will perform a sequence for the loop of the video, the 22 minutes of the installation. And so that's happening on the final day of the exhibition, which is Sunday the 29th of March. That's right. So it'll be the very last thing and then we'll turn it off as they finish. And do you think that will be the end of the work forever? Or are you hoping it may kind of evolve further and be presented in you in yet a different way again? It's feeling a little bit like it. I mean, particularly with the responsive performance on the last night, that in a way feel, I mean, who knows? And and because Experimenter has been so heavily involved and, you know, the reason it is happening is because of Experimenter that there are options for maybe some festival things. But um, in some ways I'm feeling it's a little bit like it's it's come full circle and that performance will be a really lovely way to say goodbye to it. 
If you want to know more about a drone opera uh, and indeed about the Lion House Museum galleries at 217 Cotham Road Q, jump online, lionhousemuseum.com.au. Matthew's work, A Drone Opera, is showing from the 14th of March until that's uh, this Saturday, the 14th of March, through until Sunday, the 29th of March. And if you want to know more about Matthew and his practice, jump online to his website, sleeth.info. That's S L. Sleeth.info to learn more about Matthew and his practice and lionhousemuseum.com.au if you want the dates and details for a drone opera. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, that was fun. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.